The Exton Moss Experiment Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss Episode 56 Doctor Who The Time Meddler Hello everyone and a very warm welcome to the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And today we're going to be looking at the William Hartnell Doctor Who story, The Time Meddler. This is in memoriam of Donald Tosh, who we lost... Uh, was it in January? December. December. Crack out, time flies. Um, he was the last surviving member of the production team from the, the, William, Hart- no, yeah. from the William Hartnell area. Era. I, I don't know whether there's anybody left from Patrick Troughton era. Nobody's name really springs to mind, but I couldn't absolutely say. Um, but he was certainly the the last survivor of the production team from the, the William Hartnell era. Um, he was script editor between the Time Meddler and the Massacre, so not a huge time. But he was there. And yeah. He's a, certainly recording interviews and extras for the DVD range, which I know you're not mad fond of, but I do. There, there are some really nice special features that are produced for Doctor Who. And the the effort that, that gets put into the DVD releases and now the Blu-ray releases, of course, no other programme that I know of gets that level of attention. The only one that's comparable is Star Trek. They went to town on the original series and I think Next Generation in terms of completely almost rebuilding the episodes from the ground up. Before we launch into watching the episodes, because we're going to do a commentary as ever on the first and last and an overview of the middle two episodes, we of course have to get out the tonic screwdriver and unscrew the gin. What have we got for this afternoon? We have a Scottish gin, um, and that's inappropriate as he was Scottish, Mm -hmm. Uh, and this is Strathern Heather Rose Gin. Uh, oh, oh, wow, that is sharp. Oh. It says, a celebration distilled gin, ideal as an appetizer for a special occasion or as an everyday treat. With its combination of rose and heather, it makes a, a take on a prosciutto character. The colour of the gin changes to a delicate pink when topped up with tonic. Well, it hasn't. It's stayed sort of piss yellow. Fragrant, floral, and light, sweet yet spicy. Does that uh, describe what you've just tried? Absolutely not. Oh, that's got a tang to it, hasn't it? A t- it's like... The rose isn't coming through at all. The heather is, absolutely, Which I and I rather like it. It is. It's, ju- it's way, way too overpowering for me. That's not... Is that with tonic? Have you made that with tonic? Yes. I thought it was ginger ale. There's a, there's a froth no, that's on the, this. That's the colour of the gin. It's a one from me. I do not like that at all. It's a three from me. It's it's all right. It's a little bit sharp. For a gin that says it has rose in, it should actually taste of rose. Yeah. It's What's that? Strathern? Strathern Heather Rose Gin. And so having been not terribly successful on the, uh, on the gin, shall we move on to the Black Archive? Yes, let's. As with other In Memoriams, we are only going to select things that are the output of the person we're memorialising. And because he's a Doctor Who script editor and writer, I thought I'd start off with one of the stories that he co-wrote. And it was also during his time as script editor, and that is The Massacre, or The Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve. We're giving it its Sunday mm. name. 
and he wrote two of those episodes, uh, War of God and The Bell of Doom, which are the first and fourth episodes of it. Now, I absolutely adore The Massacre. Yeah. It's one I would love to see. It's the, I think it's the story with the least visual representation because there are no clips, there are no tele-slaps, there's a few production photos, the few production photos make it look absolutely gorgeous, <sighs> the audio sounds fantastic and the, uh, it's one of the stories where the Doctor plays both himself and he, the Doctor's not in the majority of the story and the reason for that is that the Doctor also plays one of the historical figures. Yes, um, the Amos of Amboise. Yeah. And judging by the, uh, the audio performance, does a fantastic job of it um, and is letter perfect and there are none of the frequent fluffs and slip-ups that you see during, the, during his portrayal as the Doctor. And that to me says that the slip-ups that he were doing were at least in part deliberate. Mm. If he was sort of unconsciously doing them as the Doctor, he would unconsciously do them as the Abbot of Amboise as well. Mm. So for many reasons, it's a, it's a shame that the, the massacre doesn't exist. I think we have actually already pulled the massacre out, but this is specifically his episodes, yeah. uh, and it's a bloody good story. I would love to see that one. There's, there's only three stories. There's Marco Polo, Mission to the Unknown, and The Massacre that don't have any footage of any kind uh, existing. <laughs> The Massacre was my first foray into missing episodes proper. The, prior to that, there'd been The Crusade. I've spoken about this before, but it came in a lovely green box with uh, the Space Museum and a CD of the soundtracks of The Missing Stories. And it was just a magical experience. Uh, the BBC really did a good job of, of presenting that and making a, a quite humdrum story. There's nothing amazing about The Crusade, but it just... They'd lavished so much time and effort on it. Uh, I really enjoyed that. But The Massacre was the first of the proper missing story CDs with linking narration, and they did such a good job on it. And the sound, particularly in episode four, is a bit ropey. Even after Mark Ayers had worked his magic on it, I believe now that there's some uh, much better recordings have come to light. Fairly recently, actually. It's within the past six months. A huge collection spanning from, I think it was Hartnell, right into mid... Troughton and they don't think that they think that there are others that this person recorded um, because the the catalogue ends and it's just so meticulous so I I hope they turn up but I'll be interested to hear these recordings because I believe that in some cases even though there were domestic recordings they're better than the optical tracks so I'm sure at some point we'll hear those I am going to pick another one. Donald Tosh was, he wrote episode four of Celestial Toymaker, which neither of us, I think it's probably right at the bottom of our wish list for lost stories to turn up. It is the bottom of my wish Because list. it's so dull. Um, and Peter Purvis is very vocal about this and says that it was the story that he was bored to tears making. Yeah, I can understand why. We've spoken about this recently with Galaxy 4. It's a very linear story. It's sequential and it doesn't really cut away to any other subplot of note. It's just dull and I have never been enthused by Celestial Toymaker but it's missing and in the spirit of this episode Actually, I think it's episode one that he wrote that he wrote the Celestial Toy Room ah right so his, it is missing but there's the final test isn't there is that episode four yes and there's the um the dance of the dolls or something that actually the celestial toy maker will be very interesting because if it does ever turn up there's a particular line in it is it the billy bunzer character cyril is it eeny meeny miny moe yeah and it carries on with the original version 
It will be interesting to see what they do with that. They, would have, they must take it out. I know there'll be uh, an outcry if they do. There'll be there'd be a bigger outcry if they didn't. I'm, I'm really not a fan of sort of revising things that are of, the, of, of its time, but that, that's one I would make an exception for because it it is so wildly offensive and doesn't actually. It's an aside. I think he's yeah. he's tossing off this rhyme while he's doing something else. I think, and if you listen to the audio CD, it is obscured by narration. Yes. So yeah, not not a great one, but um, I'll recover it just in the spirit of this particular episode. So, here we are. Without further ado, we'll launch straight into episode one of The Time Meddler. Did they still have individual names at this point? Yes. Celestial Toymaker was the, the last one to have individual names, because The Savages was the first. Oh, yes, The Watcher. No, the, the Savages was the first to have episodes one, two, three, and four. So we're going to watch The Watcher and then Checkmate. Well, we're going to watch all four of them. Mm. We're going to comment on The Watcher and then Checkmate. Part one of The Time Meddler from 1965. little establishing scene in the TARDIS with Vicky wandering around looking a bit bored and commenting how much she's going to miss Ian and Barbara which is nice of her because I don't think Ian and Barbara mentioned Susan at all after she left (laughs) (laughs) so he's there only six seven years older than you that's a cheery thought and are you sure you wouldn't want to go home? What would he do if she said, yes, I'd like to, please? He'd be sat crying. But would have, would have to say, well, it's a shame that you want that because I can't, I can't, can't steer do it the for ship. you. He'd probably work that out by himself. This is music from Tomb of the Cybermen. Um, no, the moon base. What is he aiming to do with his coat? Is he hiding behind it? That was very, very... I mean, I've not really noticed this before. That was a very odd thing that he did. Just heard, heard somebody in the TARDIS, so takes off his coat and hides behind it. I think the idea was probably to grapple with the intruder. Then why would you hold a coat in front of your face so you can't see them coming? <laughs> It's very much a, right, I'm holding this up, my cloak of invisibility, I can't see you, therefore you can't see me. <laughs> so this is immediately after the chase. For all this, that's a fairly ropey story. It introduced a good character, and he does turn into a, a, a very good companion. Mm. Um, I mean, we, we were saying the other day that he's, he's more reasonable and human than... A lot of the yeah. the other companions, um, Ian and Barbara, are great characters. They always come across as a little bit sort of too perfect. Yes, I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, whereas Stephen, it's kind of warts and all. He is arguably uh, just a more human character. The stuff that he comes out with, it feels less scripted than a lot of the the others. Yeah. Still, Vicky is very scripted. 
over yonder is the horizontal pole. Up there is the scanner. Those are the doors. That is the chair with a pad on it. Sheer <laughs> That is a really, really nice line. Yes. I do like this Idby bit. Yeah, he, he comes across as, as very human. Um, I believe he enjoyed his time on Doctor Who and the company of a number of the companions. Didn't he have a thing with Adrian Hill and Gene Marsh? Did he? I think so. In the recording break, Peter Purvis was given a quick shave by the production team. So that was a real beard. Really? Yep. It was rubbish. There's a reason he didn't... Yeah, he'd grown it for the role, apparently, according to the production notes there. He'd been much better with a stick-on one. Especially compared to the, to all the very good beards that are now turning up. Associated with bad wigs, in one case. Althea Charlton is always in good things. She, she died very young. She did. Um, she was in the very first Doctor Who story. She was only on, on a, an unearthly child. Yeah, I think she was in her 40s when she died. Mm. <laughs> that is one of Hartnell's best ever lines. Time Metal was one of those stories that was in the, the first two complete stories to be returned. So I started getting involved in fandom in 83, and a couple of years after that, the Time Meddler and the War Machines had only one surviving episode, was recovered from Nigeria. So thanks to Nigeria, we have three complete stories mm. and one well, that pretty much. Well, no, we know it's complete. Well, we do it's know just, it. Yeah, it's just not complete is in the complete, archive. Yeah. One of the best Billy fluffs is about to occur. Yeah, it could be miles. It'll be much quicker to go up here. Yeah, so possibly it might. But I've got a mountain goat, and I prefer walking to any day. I hate climbing. Mm, hey. You might try being a bit more tactful. Don't you start as well. Come on, let's go. No. The interplay between these two is quite good, actually, and it's a yes. great introduction for a companion. But I'm impressed with this set, because with the, the foley work they've done on it, the seagulls and the crashing waves and what have you, it's perfectly believable that they're on a beach. The rocks look like rocks, as opposed to uh, lumps of polystyrene. It's a pity we didn't see more of them. He was a very good character. Um, it's played by Peter Butterworth here. Yeah, good. He's great in this story. Hmm. His appearance in Dalek Master Plan... Less, uh, he is very good in it. it, it it's just a bit crowbarred in. I think this. And it, it's a very throwaway part of the, mm. the story. It, it's one of those ones that was obviously put in to, to bulk out and doesn't really add anything to the, the story itself. Production team were kept busy with food, three portions of cold roast chicken. The chicken was to be practical, therefore to be eaten. It's what I think it was Patrick Troughton used to refer to as the practical pie. Where, you know, it was it Sylvester McCoy? If you knew you were recording something or if you were in a stage production where you had a dinner to eat, it meant that you basically got a free meal. Yeah. Stephen was originally called Michael Taylor. And again, really nice sets. Mm. That, unfortunately, is a bit more obviously a painting. Mm. But the, the whole decaying monastery thing looks wonderful. Yeah, it is good. Oh, that's nice. The sky. Yeah, this looks really good. Um, his wig's not great. This is much better than I remember last time I saw it. It's compelling. I mean, there's big chunks where we've not been saying anything. Mm. But I've always really, really liked the Hartnell historicals. I know that you're more fond of the science fiction ones. Yes, I am, because I prefer science to, fi- science to history. Yep, Mead isn't delightful. 
I don't mind it. Um, yeah. I don't really like honey, so... That's probably why, yes. I hope you will forgive a woman's harsh welcome. She's always reminded me of a cross between... Alethea Charlton. Um, as a cross between Arabella Weir and Maureen Lipman. With a touch of Damaris Heyman thrown in. I can see where you're coming from, yes. See, again, this is throwing a history at you. And thinking about it, its original intention of being educational. Did anybody actually need teaching what happened in 1066? I'm rubbish at history. <laughs> it's just one of those dates that you know. It is, but it's it's a bit more interesting than, say, 1111 or something, or, uh, you know... 1278. When, what, what happened in 1278? Nothing. That's what I mean. But the point I'm making is that if you're trying to teach people about history, why teach them a date that we all absolutely know? Everybody knows what happens in, happened in 1066. But this is nothing to do with Hastings. This is all to do with the Viking invasion. That's uh, true. Which is less well known. I mean, we had three kings in one year. Edward, mm. the, was Edward the Confessor? And then... That's a bit ungrateful. He just tossed it away. Yeah. Woman, woman, where Woman. He does kind of go out of his way to appear suspicious in this. Yes. And I do quite like the fact that she's open and welcoming to start with, but at the end of the day, never gets away from the fact that he's a... Uh, Suspicious, a, suspicious old man. A suspicious stranger. Um, and it's not the, oh, you're, you're the doctor, so therefore we must be instant. Mm. You must instantly be trustworthy. I hadn't realised that he went on to become a regular in Zedcast. No. Then from that to, to Blue Peter. I mean, he was part of the Blue Peter team of my childhood. Well, he's just said in the production notes, uh, the mighty team of Peter Purvis, John Noakes and Valerie, Valerie Singleton, widely regarded as the classic lineup. Yeah. Whereas the team that I remember were those three plus Leslie Judd. Um, who was married to Derek Folds. Now, I thought she left Blue Peter to look after her husband who was taken ill with MS or something like that. I think that they... Because when did she leave Blue Peter? That was late 70s, mid to late 70s, was it? Late 70s, it would have yeah. been. I think they were already divorced by the time he was sort of starting Basil Brush. Because of those four, Valerie Singleton was the first one to leave. And, and John Noakes went to do things like go with Noakes and... That's a nice shot. Mm. Moon behind the clouds. Yeah. I mean, obviously... Stock footage, yeah. but there's actually some good use of stock footage in this. There is a fairly ropey bit coming up when the Vikings arrive, because there's about 20 of them rowing on this boat and a swarthy Viking captain, and then two or three come over the cliff, and you never none of the people on board the boat. There's all stock footage. Yeah. At the time of recording this podcast, there is a team in... Is it America who've recoloured episode two of Dalek's Master Plan? The clips we've seen oh, they uh, look, look wonderful. And all of the colourists have have put out clips from from other things that they've recoloured and looks fantastic. And presumably massively time intensive. There is it's purely accidental. There's a process being stumbled across recently that will to a reasonably good degree electronically recolour entire episodes because they, this was a, a process where they wanted to be able to isolate what, what known as keyframes mm. and as a result of that they uh, they accidentally recoloured black and white footage 
That final frame is being held way too long. But works because he he is glaring and angry. Mm. And you can believe that somebody would stay glaring and angry for quite a while when somebody has just captured them and is laughing in their face. So it, it's not a Katarina staring off into the middle distance. True. But they should have faded to black quicker. It, just, it was too long, that. That episode flew. It and did. there was a lot in it. It was um, uh, There was really, really good um, interplay between the, the TARDIS teams. Uh, Stephen uh, slotted in absolutely perfectly. It, there's a really nice interplay between him and Vicky because she's the more experienced traveller. She's telling him what's going to happen, what it's like travelling with the Doctor. Um, he believes some of it. He doesn't believe other. And he's taking note of that, um, having trouble with the, the more unbelievable bits of it. But at the same time, once they get out of the TARDIS and once they're moving around, he's very protective of her mm. um, and continues to be protective. He's, he's, very, he's protective of Vicky and then he's protective of, of Katrina and he's protective of Dodo most of the time. Sarah Kingdom isn't, but Sarah Kingdom very clearly... Doesn't need it. Doesn't need it. And of all of those companions that he's paired with, is the one that is clearly an adult. Vicky and Dodo are very definitely in the schoolgirl granddaughter age. Katerina's somewhere between the two. I had forgotten how good Time Meddler is. Uh, I've not seen it for a long time. I think the last time I saw this was a repeat in 1992 or something. And of course, they've come along, the restoration team have cleaned this up and it looks brilliant. Yeah, and it's not one I've seen in, in quite a while. There are stories that are just very good that you tend to slip, slip my memory. Thing, things like this, every time I, I watch it, I'm reminded of how good it is. But then I'll forget about that and not watch it again for ages. Other stories I don't watch for a while and then watch again and realise why I don't watch it for a while. Underworld. Yeah, that was particularly bad. So, onwards with episodes two and three, and we'll pass comments in a moment. Right. To be honest, uh, the plot kind of poddles along with the TARDIS team having very little interaction with it. So, mm. Vicky and Stephen wander around not really doing a very great deal. The Doctor is locked up in a cell for the whole of episode two and doesn't do anything because yeah. William Hartnell was on holiday. Vikings turn up and um, get involved in a, in a skirmish. Injured Vikings force their way into the monastery and in, insist that the monk looks after them. There are interactions with the villagers. Um, the men of the village go out to search for Vikings and then the Vikings turn up and attack Edith's her name, isn't it? Althea Charlton. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But there's just a, an awful lot of very nice looking running around. My recollection is always that Althea Charlton played the only female character in this. But actually, there's another female extra that crops up when she goes to, to visit the, the monk and take him some food. Who I always forget is there because she's very backgroundy. Mm. Um, and as we've seen with a, an awful lot of things, one of the best rounded and best portrayed supporting characters is the uh, female character. Of all the villagers, she's the one that is that gets the most screen time. She's the one that is the best rounded character and very well portrayed. Mm, yes, it's the sets to me. I just I'd forgotten how nicely done they are because you tend to again in your head they're always reasonably well done historical sets, but you can generally tell it's just a set. Some of these are 
Very, very well done. And they've cross-cut it with a lot of stock film. And the sound work is very important. Mm. I just like the look and feel of it so far. Because basically the monk's plan is just to have a fiddle about with time. There's no real... It's not like the master, there's some grand scheme to to gain power. The monk has always been... Have a little bit of a medal, but just for fun, really. Well, of of the three that we... The three sort of adversarial time lords that we saw in the in the classic series. Yeah, the master comes up with ridiculous plots to try and take control of the the universe, and they never work because they they have no sort of long term thought behind them. So we watch the time meddler, master's plan to to raise Kronos. Well done him. No clue what he was going to do with Kronos. No. Um, other than say, can I have your power, please? Same with the demons. Raise Azal, and then no thought about how he actually does anything with Azal, other than saying, I'd like your power, please. Yeah, 40-foot um, demon, what am I going to do with it? The Rani just has no interest in power at all. She, she's only interested in in science and will become adversarial when her plans get in the way of whatever it is that the Doctor's doing. And then you've got the monk who's actually motivated by really good intentions, because he wants to to wipe out the the Vikings so that Harold doesn't have to trek all the way up to the northeast and then back again and lose the Battle of mm. Battle of Hastings because he thinks Harold would be a much better king than William. There's but, an element of whimsy about the monk. He's not um, he's not motivated because he's a bad bastard. He's, yeah. he's, uh, but how much of that is because he's played, played by, by a comedic Peter, actor yeah. and a very well known comedic mm. actor? So we were talking about guest stars in Doctor Who. And generally, you didn't get big names, uh, certainly in the uh, 60s and 70s. He would have been a big name. I've always thought this, that it was quite a coup, really, to get him. And and not only get him, but get him back. Because this is at the peak of the Carry On era, when they were churning out certainly one a year. I think there were a couple of years where two came out a year. But he wasn't sort of first string Carry On. He wasn't, but he was in a lot. Yeah. But he wouldn't have been in, in all of them. I don't, don't think there are any of them that were in all of them. I think Sid James was in most. He dropped out around 1975, but he'd been in it. I think he was in them but they 10 or 12 years. But he was... he he was he, he wasn't in the, the earlier ones. No, he wasn't. The very early ones, no. Some of my favourite of the, the carry-ons are actually the black and white ones. I love... Spying. I really like carry-on spying. Spying is... I, don't, I can't really remember much about that one. Um, I've got them all. We, we should do a carry-on. But, it's one of the earliest I remember watching. Well, Constable's pretty good, and Carry On Teacher's very good, and Carry On Cabby is exceptional. Um, and I think Sid James is in... I Sid quite Mark. like Carry On Regardless. It's the employment agency that yeah. I worked for. And that, that was the first Carry On film, wasn't it? No, the first Carry On film was Carry On Sergeant in 1959 with William Hartnell. Um, and then the final one was... Well, technically the final one was Columbus, although yeah, people but there, tend there was to edit a... that out. But there was Emmanuel in 1978. That was yeah. the, the last of the original run. And we've got three new Which Carry Ons is... coming next week. I've never seen Emmanuel. I, I can't even... I think I've seen the opening sort of quarter of an hour and um, it was painful because by that point Kenneth Connor's certainly in it and Kenneth Williams is in it yeah but by that point they're all knocking on a bit and to see them chasing after young women yeah um, didn't really sit well and the, the one before that was it Carry On England ah uh, with Windsor Davis yes yeah Patrick Mower Judy Geeson because that really doesn't have 
carry on wise, star wise, is not actually. It's Kenneth, Kenneth Connors in it. Is he, on, is he in England? Yeah, he's the one whose uniform falls apart as he's marching along. It's been too long since I've seen them. Um, I watched them all years ago, watched them in order from the start, and for some reason we stopped at Emmanuel. <laughs> I think there are probably some that I haven't seen. I've never actually sat down and looked, looked at a list and thought, I've seen all of these. I know I've um, watched Carry On Screaming over and over and over again. With uh, Fenella Fielding. Fielding. So, so coming back to coming the back time meddler. Time meddler. Shall we crack on with episode four? Right, so now we're cracking on with the final episode of... Uh, the time meddler and we're going to do as complete a uh, a commentary, a commentary as, as we ever do drag our attention away from the screen for yeah so episode yes. 3 closed with the reveal that the monk has a TARDIS and they step inside it's disguised as an altar it's quite a ropey quality print isn't it well it is but it's telecine transfer of the end of episode 3 that they played into the start of episode 4 so if you look, it was the same with... Because they've done reprises for each of the episodes. Yeah. And the reprise has always been of ropier quality than the original. Because this has always been a bone of continuity contention. Mm. That the Monk has got a Mark IV TARDIS. Uh, whereas the Doctor's a Mark One. Obviously it's a Type 40. At some point it's been retconned as a Type 40 Mark IV. The other thing that they talk about, the, the Monk and the Master are the, are the same character. The Master, it's very well established was a contemporary of the Doctor. And the monk is said to be 50 years in the Doctor's future. Oh, well, now, in, in a few of the novels, I think, the monk and the master are part of the Decker, the, the ten Time Lords at uh, university or whatever. But in this, it says comes from 50 years ahead. Ah, right. Mortimus is uh, the, the monk's name. I think that's established in The New Adventures. He's got a very animated face. And they do bounce off each mm. other very well. The whole don't interfere with history is... It's a nice idea, but he only ever applies it to to Earth history. Mm. Turn up somewhere else and that's Again. still somebody's history, but bugger about with it as much as you... And th- this was a nice start of the pseudo-historical stories. Yeah, this it's a sta- Well, it's said in the production subtitles that, uh, earlier that... It's the first attempt to marry science fiction and history in one story. Yeah. And wasn't done again, I suppose, the Egyptian bits of the Dalek master plan and the first half of Evil of the Daleks. But when was the next proper pseudo-historical Time Warrior is at a half and half? Oh, Abominable Snowman. Yes, I suppose. And after that... Underwater Menace, I suppose. Well, maybe that's set in present day, isn't it? No, that would set, set in future. That was 1970 and they made it in 66. Because mm. there wasn't anything Pertwee, was there? Well, no, not really. I mean, b- bits in Carnival of Monsters on board the, the SS-1. Yes, yeah, sort of. Um, and yeah. the bits of Time Warrior. And after that, Pyramids of Mars, Mask of, Mask of Mandragora. It was, it was really Tom Baker where the pseudo-historicals came into their own. Yeah, I suppose. Camouflage unit rather than chameleon circuit. Yes. And Saxon sarcophagus. The villager running out of the, um, the monastery and leaving the door open for, for other people to, to run in. 
Is that scroll actually a roller blind? It did look like it. The console's considerably higher. And they, they did remember to close the door, so... <laughs> Gallifrey is mentioned for the first time in the Time Warrior. Yeah, the Time Lords are mentioned, but I always thought, did Gallifrey not get a mention in... No, it didn't, in War Machine. In War Games. No, no, definitely not. The, the Time Lords Time Lords did. Yeah, but actually, good motivation. It is good motivation, yeah. She's very good, isn't she? Yes. I don't really know how realistic it is that they'd be taking so much notice of her. Mm. Mind you, it wasn't unusual in English history. At this point in English history. Um, yeah, but even going back earlier than this, um, there were quite a few peppered through history women tribal leaders. Oh, yes, absolutely. But You mean is that just a... At, at this point in history. Yeah. You were there. Yeah, that's, that's a fair. Because, yeah, you go back at, um, a few centuries and you've got very powerful women like Eleanor of Aquitaine. But who was, and even further back than that, um, Odyssea? Yes, yeah, she's the one that I was thinking of, yeah, that was, but that was... Uh, but she was over a thousand years before this. Was it that far? Yeah, because she fought the Romans. Yeah, when did the Romans leave, was it? I thought it was sort of 300-odd AD when they buggered off. Was it a bit earlier? It's still multiple hundreds of years. Oh, yes, yeah. Whereas around this time, who would who would there have been? Uh, there was God, love it. front and centre with a uh, with a spear. Mm. There was uh, Godwin. There was uh, oh, I can't remember. The, um... I mean, history is more your thing than mine. Yeah. Um, the, around this time, there was um, there was a couple, and they were they were sort of king and queen of mercy or something like that. But they sort of played people off around Europe uh, to keep peace. Mm. And she, I think her name was Edith. She was the wife of an, one of the Edwards. But she was a terrific schemer. And she was pulling all the strings, really. But was she doing that as advisor or somebody who was actually in charge? Well, she was queen. So, oh, she was the king's wife. Mm. Because she's the one they do all the interaction with. She's she's the one with the the brains to work yeah. out f- to first be suspicious of him, um, and then work out that it's the monk to be hmm. suspicious of. There's some beautiful direction in this, and some really nice smug acting from yeah. him. Yeah, he does do smug terribly well. But, uh, Peter Purvis does trot out a story that he said when I first started out in Doctor Who, there was I did a lot of big expansive acting and uh, William Hartnell took me to one side and he said Peter it's television very small he said if you if you watch Hartnell's performance there's a lot of all this hand up by the face acting and it's all and I think that is the only remaining cut so missing sequence from the episode the the final death bit of the, the Vikings Mr. Taylor we have 
Please be calm. Now you two go outside. Now follow me a minute. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Uh, that whole little sequence, and the doctor, Vicky wants to know what's going on, so the doctor says, Get out, Tim, just leave me alone now, doing this. explain a minute. Stephen thinks it's hilarious, and then says, Well, what are you trying to do? And the, just the a look just and a point. Gl- Bill Hartnell can do this with a look. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I mean, he really is superb in the role. And with things like this, where he's just got such glee at his own cleverness. You've said this before, but if this was missing, that would have been lost. Yeah. That little moment, which the audio wouldn't have recaptured. or And telly snaps wouldn't have picked no. up. And But it's like Sleepy Dravin and the bits with the bars in... Um, God, master plan. All of these wonderful little little touches that we can now see because we've got the episodes. And Those moving clouds in the sky and the the little breeze as they stood on what's yeah. supposed to be a cliff. It's a real. Just it looks fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it, it's fantastic that we have this to watch because it is such a visual story. As I understand it, he got the, the job as as Stephen, in part because when he was playing Morton Dill, he just got on really well mm. William Hartnell. It is a shame that we don't see more of the monk. But actually, would all that comedy have worn a bit worn a thin? Worn a bit thin. I think it would. He was certainly the first Time Lord to reappear. Can you think of any other recurring characters at this period of Doctor Who? Prior to this? Or, or prior to Master Plan? No. And actually, apart from the monk and Travers, oh yes, I've forgotten. Is there about any Travers. other recurring uh, character that appears in more than one story in the whole of the sixties? What's he done? He's taken my dimensional control. He's ruined my time machine. I'm a rude. Oh, this is a really nice bit and an absolutely fantastic-looking set. What is that wire on the floor? Unless it's supposed to be ivy, because there's ivy all over the place. Oh, and I forget that they Oh, those are nice. Really nicely done. Um, a little bit... A for Andromeda. Yes. Uh, and didn't they do a, a, a similar kind of thing at the end of the first season? So our destiny is in the stars. Was that with the TARDIS flying through space? Yeah, yeah. I think so. So how did you like that? Because to me, it's absolutely flown by. Yeah, it has. And I... I enjoyed that an awful lot more than I ever have done watching it previously. Um, and, yeah, that's I'd very ju- underrated as a story, that, yeah. you know. And I've noticed this when we've been commenting on things. Because we're deliberately talking about the stuff on the screen rather than just watching, oh, they're dedicated to Verity Lambert, that's nice. Then you see more. Mm. And there are things that you'll pick up, there are things that I pick up. But even when we've 
pre-podcast days, been watching Doctor Who together and just been, or have you noticed this? Have you noticed Mm. this? I think we pick up a lot more while we're doing the podcast. We're also blessed with a beautiful restoration, which, which makes these things almost brand new to watch, but also the production subtitles, which is why we can... Yeah, for the good. most part, comment almost continually on Doctor Who. There are, if we get a real stonker of an episode, we tend to do a lot of our commentary after it's actually finished and we can concentrate a bit. Yeah, we did The Doctor's Wife last night and there's so much dead space where we were just... So, yeah, I really enjoyed that. That was a great story. Very fortunate that uh, whenever we're going to do these sessions, Simon now just clicks on Amazon and DVDs appear through my door, for which I'm terribly grateful. But as you pointed out, they are quite cheap nowadays. Yeah, this I think was a fiver or something. So I should complete my collection um, for what it is. If I buy, you know, one or two a week or something, uh, because the Blu-rays are out. I would love to see the Blu-rays because I've seen bits and pieces that you've brought round. I missed out on the first couple, stupidly thinking that they'd be available forever and they sold out within weeks yeah I mean I, I've got each one as it's come out and I think the most recent one is sitting for me sitting waiting for me at home at the moment because it, it's at 23 or 26 26 have you seen the trial of a time lord one is that out yet yes what's so. the um the special version of vervoids like I don't know I haven't actually watched anything mm. from it yet I don't really get doctor who watching time at home Oh, of because, course, yes. Because uh, I'm, I'm working away from home at the moment, so I'm, I'm in Hull from Sunday evening to, to Friday evening. And I still do weekend some weekend shifts at my old hospital. Um, so I don't get a massive amount of telewatching time. And what I do get, I get, there are things that I can watch in Hull because I've got my computer up there, mm. but that won't play Blu-rays. So that, that's all on DVD. And at home, we watch things that both of us want to watch. Yeah. Um, it would be very unfair of me to insist that Alan sit, <laughs> sit through Terror of the Vervoids or something. He would find it hilarious uh, because of well, the vervoids, yes, what the Vervoids look like. But the whole trial thing. There is a story. It was one of the Doctor Who magazine editors had said that they got one particular issue, and I can picture it in my mind's eye, it was one from the 90s, where they had a vervoid on the front cover, and they moved Doctor Who magazine to the top shelf. (laughs) (laughs) You can pretty much understand why. If there are listeners out there who don't know what a vervoid is, just type it into Google. Don't do it at work. So... Yeah, time. I think I've said everything, as much gushing as I've got about the time meddler. William Hartnell is on f- real good form for this one. All of the main cast are, so the the three regulars, and there are two big guest characters, aren't there? There's the monk and there's Edith. Yes. All the others are kind of a, a bit background. Mm. There's a, there's the the Vikings, but they're a bit rubbish. The other Saxons, there's Edith's husband and, and a couple of others. But again, they're all backgrounding mm. and... It, it's very much Edith who is the well, the, yeah, the, the main, the main character yeah. that you're de- dealing with, and also kind of in charge. So when they're having the the big village meeting, she's the one that is explaining why they should go and investigate the monastery. And as they're going up there, she's front and center with a spear. And now a chunk of that is likely to be the fact that she was attacked and assaulted by the the Vikings when they came through, and she wants a bit of payback for that. That leads in nicely to our final segment. I am Persian. Name your price. What are we giving it drag queen index-wise? Oh, one. There's nothing. No. 
Edith and Vicky are far too animated to do particularly good wrestling bitch face. The costumes. <laughs> Vicky, Vicky's wearing a fishing smock and Edith's wearing literally sackcloth. The makeup consists of smeared mud. And now th- this is very definitely one, one, one Olvia. And on that subdued note, rating a glass. To Donald Tosh. Right, everyone. Well, it's been a bit of a sad week on The Quiet because we've lost a few celebrities over the past seven days, notably Sean Connery, John Sessions and Geoffrey Palmer. We'd already prepared a little piece for Sean Connery a couple of days ago. We have been watching one of his... In fact, I think it is his earliest TV outing, isn't it? Or his earliest starring role, I think. Yes, earliest starring role. But before we get on to what that is, perhaps we should say a little bit about the, the man himself. He probably doesn't need too much introduction for anybody who's ever seen a a James Bond film. But he was born in Edinburgh in 1930. Originally, when he he first left home, he joined the the Navy and served in the Navy for three years and was uh, discharged on medical grounds. He joined in 1946, so just missed active service in the Second World War. He was a professional footballer for a while. He was a professional bodybuilder. And then after that, he went into acting and, to be honest, never really looked back. He is the definitive James Bond and was in some very good TV plays, one of which we have watched. Which is Adventure Story from 1961. Fifth year, mouthpiece of Apollo. Get the position. Right at the beginning. Why didn't you tell me it would end like this? Where did I go wrong? Yes, it is a play written by Terence Rattigan. It was originally put on the London stage in 1949 and bombed quite badly. And then for some reason, it was uh, BBC did a, a live TV version of it in 1950, which was never recorded. And then another one in 1961, um, directed by Rudolf Cartier, with Sean Connery in the role of Alexander the Great. And it starts off with Alexander the Great on his deathbed, looking back at a defining moment of his life. And it looks at uh, his life around the uh, the time of the conquest of Persia. And he, he goes from being a sort of cheery and, and fairly chipper military man to an absolute despot and ends up killing a load of people close to him. The one person alongside him is his childhood friend, Hephaestion, who he doesn't kill. Alexander and Hephaestion are one of those historical revisionist things that are always supposed to be lovers, and I don't think that there's an awful lot of historical evidence behind that. Mm. But I'm not a historian, I might be wrong about that. And Hephaestion in the adventure story was played by William Russell of Ian Chesterton fame. Yes. I mean, Sean Connery does start off, his very first opening line, I don't know whether it's just the delivery or whether he's trying something a little bit Macedonian, but it soon descends into pre-James Bond. He is, as you say, very chipper. The play itself, it comes across as very stilted and Shakespearean and that very sort of pronounced delivery, which I find quite dull, frankly. Mm. Um, and I, I think it's a story that drags massively. You could argue that it's of its time, but at its, t- at its time it bombed in the, the theatre as well. So It was, I have to admit, a little bit dull. Now, I, I'm not the greatest fan of Shakespeare, but even though this was... I mean, it's in beautiful condition. I don't know whether it's been restored or just very well archived, but it just felt a little bit too stagey to me. It felt like I was watching a play. 
and um, which you basically were and yeah. around about the same time uh, it was a year after he played Hal in An Age of Kings which was all the, the Shakespearean historicals um, it was the same year as he was Alexis and Anna Karenina it's the same year as he was the title role in the Scottish play I know you're I know you're a thespian so I'm not allowed to give it it you, you bloody I hate that with a passion it's so pretentious <laughs> I know <laughs> It's called Mac Fucking Beth, to give it its full title. Anyway. I'm sure that's the way for, the way Shakespeare intended it. He was from Birmingham. He wasn't he would have been a plain talking man. I think the people of Stratford would have a word or two to say about that. <laughs> there are some very good things about this production. I mean, Sean Connery's performance is fantastic. Um, you go from the real despair of dying Alexander and right at the end when he's being asked to name a successor, it's who do I get to commit suicide by taking on the throne of Asia? When he goes into flashback right at the beginning, he's, he's very jokey um, mm. and he wants a, um, a prophecy from the, the Oracle of Delphi. So he shins up the wall <laughs> to, to pester in her, uh, her chambers. He's doing the cheeky chappy bit and, oh yeah, just, just do the do this for me and um oh look I've, I've tricked you into into doing this and you've given me the given me the prophecy it's what i want to hear happy days i'm gonna shin down the wall again and, and there is a sort of macbethian kind of descent into madness as he becomes more despotic and ends up setting fire to his entire camp because it, his soldiers complain that he's he's taking 20 trolley loads of stuff back home from uh, from persia and they only want to take one so he says well, well buggy you're burning the lot all 21 and my tent and my throne. He goes through this descent into you know tyranny, and then on his deathbed, he's always he's quite chipper about his. Done my bed. Ah, I just conquer the world. I'm going to go to sleep now. Good night. Yeah, with a little bit of where's my friend Hephaestion? Oh, he's he's dead. Well, there's no point in me stopping around anymore. For all, it's not entirely my kind of thing. Um, it's very much of its time it's lovely and it's well produced and the sets are marvelous in fact at one point they've actually got three or four live horses in there and you think you've i don't know where this was filmed what studio it was filmed at but it won't have been massive yeah there was, there was a bit right at the beginning where he's on on his deathbed and there's all these soldiers with great big pike staffs coming past and, and bowing and every so often there's a pair of them that forget to bow and just walk past um <laughs> And it kind of reminded me of the power of the Daleks because you can just tell that it's the same lot going around in a circle. Yes. <laughs> but it's, oh, bow with respect, bow with respect, bow with respect. No, can't be asked. <laughs> I've got to give it its choose. Production value-wise, it's pretty good, actually. Yeah, the sets I, are good. I, but BBC period drama, what do you expect? Absolutely. I watched this back when I, I got the Terence Rattigan box set and it was about my least favourite thing on the disc. But that's because there was some other superb stuff on the disc. And I know we've done, what did we do, separate tables? Separate tables. Uh, yeah. Yes. Oh, you ended up greeting in that as well. I did. I, it was a very moving piece. Yes. We'll, we'll do some more Rattigan because I, I do rather like Rattigan and Coward and all, the, all those old puffs. <laughs> Bringing it back to Sean Connery, who's most decidedly not an old puff. <laughs> I've uh, lost our so, train of thought there. What were we on? What we've decimated event, adventure story and probably made it so that nobody ever wants to watch it again that listen, has listened to this. I don't know a right lot about Sean Connery's television career, but obviously the thing that he's most remembered for is James Bond. Now, by a lot of people, he is revered as the ultimate Bond. 
He's never been that for me. He was very bloody good, but I've always leaned to more... Pierce Brosnan was... He was my Bond, and even though I grew up with Roger Moore, who is cheese on toast, and Daniel Craig's excellent, but it's got to be admitted, Sean Connery did set the benchmark, even though his first three films, brilliant. Second three films, not very good. Diamonds Are Forever is the most terrible shite. And Never Say Never Again, which is an unofficial Bond film, isn't very good. Now, I'm more of a Bond fan than you are. Are you familiar with his Bond work at all? I mean, I've seen all of them. I've seen them several times. There were always um, things that you watched when you uh, on Christmas Day. It's like quite like Diamonds of Forever. Oh, it's incredibly bad. It's awful. It's, yes, but all James Bond is awful. That's the whole point of it. Is this because Blofeld dresses up in drag? No, that would improve things. And I think you're thinking of Austin Powers there. No, I'm, I'm definitely not. Diamonds of Forever, Blofeld dresses up in drag. Yes, I know. <sighs> Moving on. And, so and he was forever is the one where you have the gay assassins. I was just going to say a couple of things about other films that he's done because it, I, I enjoy the James Bond, but there are some absolutely superb films that he's done. He was Colonel Arbuthnot in the absolute seminal Murder on the Orient Express, the Albert Finney one. Mm -hmm. He was The Name of the Rose, which is a brilliant film. He played a Spaniard with the least Spanish accent imaginable in Highlander. Again, a fantastic <laughs> film. I've forgotten um, about that one. Yes, of course. And uh, he was, of course, Indiana Jones's dad. He was, and they didn't get on, apparently. Apparently. But he was in... Was he in Hunt for Red October? Am I making that up? He, he was. He was the, uh, the captain. And he was in The Russia House. And I, I think The Russia House is brilliant. The bit where he's being interrogated by the by the CIA and they're going, why, why Morocco? And he just turns around and says, well, why Langley? He puts in an incredibly good, miserable performance. He he was the, the baddie in the... In the film reboot of the Avengers in the 1990s which most Avengers fans hate but I really liked but that's and one of those you've got to watch on its own just divorce it from everything else um, yes and no I think if you, if you don't if you don't know the, the tongue-in-cheek nature of the original Avengers, then it would fall a bit flat. But I, I think it's a great film. You have to regard it as a parallel Avengers. Mm, a sidestep. Yeah. Um, and he was League of Ex Extraordinary Gentlemen, which, again, it, it's superhero crap, but it's superhero crap I quite liked. Well, he was also, was it Richard III in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? S complete scene still right at the very end of the film. Uh, Richard Coeur de Leon. Oh, the first, yes, oh, yes, I was. Uh, I always get those two mixed up for some reason. Yeah, shall not allow this wedding to continue, Lord Locksley. Yeah, why they just tacked him in at the end, for <laughs> giving this massive, <laughs> massive advert that Sean Connery was in the film, and then he was in The Rock. I remember. Yeah, um, and I quite enjoyed The Rock. Time Bandits. Now. I don't think I've ever seen Tam Bandits all the way through. Um, I know, I know. It's the same as I, Claudius. You can't believe it. No, I was just going to say I'm a bit jealous, actually, because I think Time Bandits is shit. It, it's, Terry, it's Terry Gilliam being the untalented python. Um, it's, like, it's like Brazil. I, I, I really don't get on well with it. Do we know what get Sean Connery's last role was? We do, because I have the magic of Wikipedia in front of me. 2012, the narrator in Ever to Excel, and it's so well known it doesn't even have a Wikipedia link. Also in 2012, he was Sir Billy in Sir Billy playing the voice role, and the last 
thing that he did as an actor was the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen playing Alan Quatermain. Oh, so we went down on a high then, because it's generally well regarded, isn't it? No, most comic book fans think it's awful. If you don't know the comic book, it's a, it's a fun film. I mean, it it takes a very clever comic book and turns it into a by-the-numbers superhero film. But I quite like by-the-numbers superhero films, so it doesn't worry me too much. Can I do something for you, Mr. Bond? Uh, just a drink. A martini, shaken, not stirred. We've also lost John Sessions. Now, this is a man I've always really enjoyed watching him on telly, and it would seem a good opportunity for us to rewatch or re-listen to Doctor Who, Death Comes to Time, which I've always had a real soft spot for. So that's something I think we can do in more depth at a, a future date. But are you familiar with John Sessions on the whole? Well, yes. He quite often turns up on Have I Got News For You. Uh, I think he turned up a couple of times on Nevermind the Buzzcocks. QI is one of his, and he's very entertaining on that. Yeah, no, what was that improv thing that he... Wasn't Whose Line, not... was it? I mean, I never watched that. He, he was on that, wasn't he? He must have been. And obviously, I know him for his his voice work. But, but yes, anything um, intellectual, incredibly is, entertaining. Oh. Death comes to time. I like a lot. I mean, we'll touch more on this when we come to do the commentary for it because I really love Death Comes to Time and the outtakes are on the end of of the disc and he's there camping it up. It's just a delight to listen to. He was very quietly also as Gus on Mummy on the Orient Express. It was a performance that was slipped in there. It wasn't really announced with any fanfare. And I just thought, what a waste to have him in that tiny little part. It was great as it, but I just thought he would have been brilliant to have brought back as a real main camp villain for an episode in vision yeah sort of chewing the scenery in the same way that simon Pegg did in um long game in the long game yeah but doctor who sometimes has a history of criminally underusing guest stars olivia coleman tamsin greek they were both given and olivia coleman played the, the villain but she wasn't really given anything to do she was just just well david warner as some background submarine officer I thought that was a terrible waste. Wasn't he the scientist with the the Walkman? Yeah, but he just sat in the back listening to Ultravox. He didn't really have a lot to do in the episode. Yeah. In a way, that part of the problem of having single 50-minute episodes, you don't get time for the the guest cast to live into their role in the same way that you did with a four-parter or a six-parter. And this is, we've mentioned this before, but this is something I do miss, is Doctor Who stories that are long enough to breathe. And they seem to have lost the talent for it. They're either crammed into 50 minutes, or there's not enough story for two episodes there's only been a handful of occasions where they've really struck the balance empty child and the doctor dances that really works the two-part finale the journey's end that was a real good story that filmed two episodes nicely world enough in time yep that was another a great one a, a, a well-written season finale and indeed the end of time which although the last half hour of that was a little bit of a self-congratulatory pat on the back i'll forgive that but then you've got others you've got things like uh, I'm sorry to point the finger at The Hungry Earth. I just thought that wasn't really enough of a story for that. Yeah, I agree. That would have worked as a one-parter. Um, the Santaran one. Poison that, Sky. That, that, yeah, yeah. Could have been compressed down a bit. And I don't know, maybe yeah, I'm being overly picky, but I, I just think that 
Doctor Who really does need room to breathe to be appreciated. If you look at all the stories where there's room for the story to breathe, those are the ones that are best regarded. Midnight's a case in point. A really simple story, small ensemble cast, not an awful lot happens, but it's really good to watch. Yeah, and Blink is another one. Hmm, yep. Having strayed a little way from John Sessions, we will come back to him at some point because it's a a very good excuse to revisit his performance in Death Comes to Time. I'm afraid there's been a change of circumstance. What do you mean? He means that our beloved leader and I have come to a little understanding, haven't we, Bedlow? He found out. I don't know how. Who are you? I am a very, very bad man. But we also, a couple of days ago, lost Jeffrey Palmer, who I think most people of our age will be familiar with from 80s sitcoms, and no, 70s and 80s sitcoms. Was in yeah, Reggie Butterflies, Perrin, Reggie Perrin, that kind of thing. Yeah, so a very familiar face on screen. Obviously a Doctor Who alumnus at least twice over. He was in The Silurians and he was in Voyage of the Damned. I think, And he was in The Mutants. He was, he was. Which, and I can't wait till the randomizer throws that up because I really like The Mutants. I've only seen it once, I think. And I can't remember an awful lot about it. But you've suggested Fairly Secret Army, and I've never seen this before, so I've just sat down this morning and watched an episode, and I loved it. What's the premise of that? The premise, this was supposed to be a spin-off from The Fallen Rise of Reginald Perrin, and Jeffrey Palmer plays a very, very similar character. The reason it's not a direct spin-off, because they were both written by the, by the same writer, David Nobbs, isn't it? It is, yeah. The reason it's not a spin-off is because they were made by different TV channels. So Reggie Perrin was a BBC. Fairly Secret Army was a was a Channel 4. It was produced by John Cleese's production company that up until then had done sort of corporate training videos. And John Cleese script edited Fairly Secret Army. In fact, the sitcom that uh, they originally wanted... Um, Nobs David Nobbs to write was a spin-off from Faulty Towers around the character of Manuel, and he said that he wasn't particularly interested in that. But I have to be honest, that sounds a bit rubbish. It does sound terrible. Now, I've always had the same view. I know there's the odd exception, like Frazier, but when they take one character out of any programme and spin off into another series, generally speaking for me, it doesn't work. One character does not make a show, no matter how popular they are. Joey and Friends, great character as part of an ensemble. Take him out of that, it loses a lot, because you've nothing to balance it out. Um, unless you take it out and put it into an, put the character into another strong ensemble. And that's what happened with Frasier. Mm. Um, take him out of the, uh, the Cheers ensemble, put him into his own show, but as a character in an ensemble rather than the, the lead character. And, that, and that's what happened with Sarah Jane Smith. She got her, her own show, and she was the lead character, but there was an ensemble cast as well. Which I mean, also touch base with the parent programme from time to time, which does give that little kiss to the roots of it. And I think I think Frasier did that as well, didn't it? I, don't, I never there, watched Frasier, so I don't know. Weren't there characters from Cheers that occasionally cropped up in, in Frasier? I'd be amazed if they didn't, but again, I'd be lying if I said I, I knew. But it does sound fairly unlikely that they didn't from time to time but getting back to fairly secret army because i've only seen the first episode and i really really enjoyed that i think that that's worth hunting down a lot of them are on youtube name uh, truscott 
Harry Kitchener Wellington, Major Queen's Own West Mercy and Lowland has retired. Fighting fit and raring for employment, sir. I don't think I've got anything at the moment. Listen. On face of it, my life a failure. But deep down, inside of this head, ideas, plans, dreams, a well of goodness waiting to be tapped. Tap my well, young man. Why don't we turn the tables, tables a little bit and you do the pricey of the, the first episode and then I'll say a bit about how the series develops on from there. Yeah, sure. Well, the first episode starts with Major, I want to call him Major Truscott Said, but that's a, a Faye's surname in, in the Doctor Who comic strips. This uh, retired army major with this long convoluted English name, Harry what? Kitchener Wellington Truscott, ex-Queen's own West Mercian Lowlanders, retired. He walks into the job centre, basically pleads with the clerk for a job. There isn't anything. So he basically wanders around for the next portion of the episode trying to kill himself. He tries to lie on a railway track that's been disused. A woman walks up and says, what are you doing, you silly man? This train line was closed three months ago. He then tries to chuck himself into a weir. And an ex-colleague of his happens to walk by and says, wait, wait, I've got £90,000. I've been left by a dead aunt. I'll split it with you. And so they end up going to the pub having a drink. It turns out it's, they're both excuses just to stop him committing suicide. But this, this ex-colleague, he ends up having a discussion with about this idea that he's got to create a secret army of retired army personnel to fend off, as he puts it, when the balloon goes up, something's in place to save Britain. So it's a completely crazy idea that they concoct in this country house. But it turns out that the woman who rescued him from the train line turns out to be this colleague's sister. And they live together in that house. And that's where the episode ends. Now, that's a very poor way of describing the episode and doesn't make it sound very interesting. But it's just the fact that Jeffrey Palmer puts in such a great performance. It's such a silly premise. And to be honest, I spent a lot of the episode wondering whether he was actually ex-army or whether he was one of those people that had just made it up. But according to Wikipedia, he really is ex-army. And I will let you take up the story from there and let me know what goes on in the rest of the series. Right. So, so his great plan, because having seen that the little England that he knows and loves is being modernised and disappearing, he really doesn't approve of this. Let me know if that sounds familiar. What he, he's decided he needs to do is set up a paramilitary organisation to put things right. There's no clear plan as to how he's going to do that once he's got his army set up, but not thinking through plans into a great deal of detail is kind of par for the course with much of this. And for the first season, that army is based in the house that Nancy and her brother own. Beamish. Beamish. With those three, and, and there are a couple more characters that come in slightly later on. Um, there's a, an ex-army colleague of Harry's and his wife, who's also ex-army, and she's played by Liz Fraser. Yes, that's uh, Doris Entwistle and um, Sergeant Major Throttle, played by Michael yep. Robbins. Who is fairly incompetent, to be honest. So they turn up and as cover for the for the army and all the equipment they're gonna need and all the stuff that they need to store, 
they open a health food shop and that ends up doing extremely well. So there, there are times where Nancy tries to be rude to customers to, uh, to get them to leave the health food shop alone because it's taking up a lot of their time. So there's a lot of sort of sitcom weirdness with mismatched characters. And you've got quite a bit of this in the early 80s. There were, there were other things like Lame Ducks. That I loved Lame Ducks. I, I suspect on a more modern viewing, it wouldn't work terribly well. But I haven't seen it since it was first transmitted. I would love to see it. So that that's the first season. And it's Harry having grand ideas and being competent about them. And then in the second season, one of them, I think it's Throttle, blows up the house by accident. <laughs> and they all end up with some sort of with with a government benefactor who gives them an ex-army base to base themselves out of and gives them a sort of covert mission. And part of the, the humour is they've lied and said that they've got 500 recruits when they've actually got six people or something. So it, it, it's covering that up and also trying to do this undercover surveillance of a terrorist that they'd set off after. To my mind, it didn't work as well because it was kind of formalising the ridiculous idea that nobody could possibly take seriously apart from an idiot like Harry and the people that he sort of gulled into joining in with him. There, there's also a, a thing where Harry and Nancy keep planning to get married and th- things always happen as she's at the altar and he has to disappear off. Now, I, I, of the two, I much prefer the first series. But Jeffrey Palmer puts in a fantastic performance as the bumbling ex-army idiot who knows he's an idiot. He says that right from the word go. And he says, I may not be massively bright, but the world's run by bright people and they've completely buggered it up. So, Who know how to use computers. But he plays it really well because he is, I, I, I hesitate to use the word typecast, but everything that he was in tended to be this sort of, if not sergeant major figure, authoritarian figure, even going back to something like Faulty Towers. He was the very stiff-lipped doctor in that who just wanted his sausages. I never Um, saw as time goes by, but I got the feeling he was... Was he that sort of character in that, or was he a bit softer? I don't know as time goes by. Um, He was less stiff upper lip in Butterflies. You know, the the Carla Lane thing, he was the the husband uh, to... Wendy Craig. I never saw it. It was just a little bit before my time. It's not really a favourite of mine when it comes to Carla Lane stuff. Um, I love the liver birds. I like bread. I quite like love, even though it absolutely bombed. It must have done, because I've never even heard of that one. Uh, That was the only one of hers that only ran for a single season. Butterflies, it was just a bit nice. Hometown Liverpool humour is always going to work for me. Well, bread in particular was a staple Sunday night diet. I think it was 8 o'clock on a Sunday night. That was sort of your last treat of the weekend before school kicked in on a Monday morning. And everybody loved bread. Well, certainly up north. Yeah, and the liver birds I used to watch with McGran, who wasn't from Liverpool, but just grew up in Blackpool and then moved to Preston when she was married. So my mum grew up in Preston. But it's still uh, that so, northern terrestrial humour. So yeah, humor. Nor- northern humour we get in our family. In the, the same way as the, the soap they used to watch um, was Coronation Street rather than Emmerdale or whatever crossroads there would have been at the, at the time, wouldn't there? Oh, it, God. It, I've it, never really been it, a fan of the soaps. I used to like old Coronation Street with people like Ina Sharples and Elsie Tanner and all, all the, the classic characters. I, I haven't watched it in years and years because I'm, I'm not a fan of soap operas, but my grand used to love it and I, I used to enjoy watching it with her. At some point, we should do first episodes of soap operas. Because the first episode of Coronation Street is still one of my favourite pieces of television. 
First episode of Brookside's pretty good. And first episode of EastEnders is fairly dramatic. Isn't somebody Miserable. dead in a chair or something? Yes. Hmm. So, which set the template for the next 35 years. Yeah. So with that suitably glowy tribute, shall we get the top off the gin for a second squeeze of the tonic screwdriver? In honour of Remembrance Day, we have a special commemorative gin. Simon, what have we got? So what we've got is the Derbyshire Distillery 11th Hour Gin. This is a gin with juniper, cherry and poppy seeds. And for each bottle, three quid goes to the Royal British Legion. And it says, thank you for supporting the Royal British Legion. Derbyshire Distillery is proud to have partnered with the Royal British Legion, who help members of the Royal Navy, British Army, Royal Air Forces, veterans and their families. The Legion supports serving and ex-serving personnel all year round, every day of the week. Their support starts after seven days of service and continues through life long after service is over. And it's quite appropriate because it's first week in November, so poppy wearing season for people in the UK may not mean an awful lot to people outside the UK. I think it has spread out there now. Is it, it doesn't I, just I, support I, UK soldiers. It is because I, I can remember being in Heathrow Airport one uh, Remembrance Day, and it's eleven o'clock. The whole lot went silent, and there were loads of Eastern Europeans going absolutely berserk because they couldn't understand why people weren't talking to them. Cultural differences. What do we think of this one? Right. So, pink. It is pink. Slightly odd colour choice for the armed services. Pink not being a large part of the, the general uniform. Oh, right. It smells very Royal sweet. Legend. It does smell very sweet. It's... I'm not a big fan of cherry. Well, I've got to admit, neither am I, particularly where gin's concerned, because it does tend to be a little bit synthetic. Touch medicinal compound. Eating it's a bit a little pink, as is demonstrated by the glass. It's okay. Um, it's not quite as... I think it smells nice. I mean, it, it clearly smells of cherries, and it's yeah. a bit weird that I think it smells nice because I dislike cherries. But it's not as um, sort of double sherbet dip as I would expect. But it is quite sweet and sherbety. Mm. There's a kick to it as well. There is, and there's a, there's a nice sort of barky bitterness that that lingers on the tongue afterwards. I kind of like this, and I suspect it would be a lot nicer in a martini than in a gin and tonic. I don't dislike it. It's a bit of a middle-of-a-road one for me. It's not one I'd gravitate towards again, but it's it's a nice drink because I don't really like any flavours that are synthetic. You and I have both had fruit flavours that are horribly artificial. There's an orange one, I think, that we've had. It tasted like cheap orange lollipops from when we were little. But this yeah. this is actually... Fiora. Yeah, I'd, I'd okay. give this a three out of five. I actually think this tastes kind of artificial cherry-ish, which is why I quite like it, because artificial cherry is much, much nicer than actual cherry, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, no, I'm the other way around. It's like banana. I can't stand bananas, but I quite like banana flavour. And I'm the other way around. Yeah, it's it's very nice. It's not anywhere near as, as horribly sweet and artificial as I was expecting. So, yeah, it's worth recommending. Yeah, whereas I, I think it's just artificial enough, and it's interesting enough. I mean, it, it's the first cherry gin that I've come across that I've actually not actively disliked. I think it's interesting enough for me to give a four, because I'd quite like to experiment with it in cocktails rather than as a pure gin and tonic. So, yes, on that note, we shall raise a glass of Remembrance Gin to Sean Connery, John Sessions, and Jeffrey Palmer. Thank you to all three gentlemen for the entertainment. Cheers. Goodbye now. The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss. 
All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. The program was recorded in Rishton, Lancashire, and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit our website at extonmossexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.